Well, good morning. I want to uh, <clears throat> echo Jeremy's welcome to those of you who are here this morning as a result of the block party yesterday. I hope you've made yourself at home. You can see our services are very simple. We stand to sing and we are seated to read from God's word. And that's pretty simple when it comes to churches today. Many are very complicated in the up and down and kneeling and all. And so we're very simple. We just want you to make yourself at home. We do, during this time, study from God's Word, from the Bible. This is not a philosophy class or a history class, although we use both in these messages because we live in a flesh and blood world. And sometimes it's handy to know how we got to where we are. <clears throat> and so we'll reference some of that. We'll do that this morning as well. But our main emphasis is to teach from God's Word and for those of you who are new, what we do here is we work our way through a specific book of the Bible, and right now we're in the book of Romans. If you don't own a Bible, or if this is your first time in church in a long time, there should be some Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Every two or three chairs, there should be one. If you can't reach it, just nudge the person next to you. They'll get it for you. We buy these for the sole purpose of allowing you to read them during the service, and then if you don't have a Bible to take it home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. In addition to that, most of the verses that we read this morning will be on the screen behind me so you can read along there. But again, we just want you to relax, make yourself at home, and see what God may have out of the book of Romans for you this morning. I would love to meet you. After the worship service, I'll be outside these double doors, and we have a gift that we'd love to give to you, and that is a coffee cup full of fairway stuff. Um, and so in exchange for your visitor's card, I'd be happy to give you one of those. So come see me after the service right outside those doors. And if you have questions about our church, uh, my, by the way, my name is Scott West. My email address is in the bulletin that you should have gotten. So uh, you can email me questions. You can call the church. The best way to get all of your questions answered is to come to our Fairway 101 class. And again, it doesn't obligate you to join but it is the first step. So welcome. And we are in Romans chapter 5. We've been in the book of Romans for a while, about a year. And we're to chapter 5. This morning we want to read the same verses we've read the last couple of weeks. But again, we'll focus on just one, or really one and a half this morning. So let's look at Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 12. It says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, let me just say, that sounds complicated and confusing. And to those of you who are new, I just want to inform you that this is just a piece of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that man sinned and Christ was the answer for that sin as he came and died in our place on a cross. And all that's necessary for us is to put our trust in him to have that sin forgiven. That is the good news of the gospel. This is one piece of it. 
So we'll hit this pretty hard this morning, but I just wanted you to keep in mind there is a bigger picture. All right? So last week we began looking at this with verse 12, and so we learned that sin came into the world through one man, and that man was Adam. The consequences of sin we know from Paul in Romans is death. So in verse 13, Paul begins to explain verse 12. He says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now that sounds pretty confusing to us, doesn't it? So remember that verse 12 teaches us that death was the result of Eden's sin. The sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is the reason for death. That sin occurred prior to any uh, formal law given by God to his people through Moses. The sins of the people here in verse 13 also occurred before there was law given by Moses. So what Paul is saying here is that the written moral code of God was not violated because it wasn't here yet. All right, so just kind of stow that away. This verse really anticipates a point we'll make later when it comes to human sin, and that is that the problem is not the law. In chapter 7, he says this in verse 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So there Paul is giving an example of what he just said in verse 13. There was no law yet, but there was still death. You see, the problem of sin in the world is not the law, but it's the people that break it. Verse 13 teaches us, really, if you want to get right down to it, that it was not man's sinful acts by breaking the Mosaic law because they didn't have it yet, remember. But it was man's union with Adam, their possession of Adam's sin nature that made them subject to death. Let me explain it this way. Paul points out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written laws. And that really makes sense, doesn't it? We know that the Ten Commandments, which were the first set of laws given, we know about when that happened. And so it says, though their sins were not counted here as infractions of the law, they still died. Remember, we're talking about death being the consequence of sin. The fact that they all died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin, not their own. So let's move to verse 14. This is where we'll spend the remainder of our time today, really just on the first half of it. Verse 14 says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we want, I want to look at the phrase, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned 
from Adam to Moses. So we looked at this back in verse 13, but it's important to look at it again here in verse 14 for a couple of reasons. First, we find that it is repeated, this idea of death reigning. We find it here in verse 14. It's in verse 17, where it says death reigned through that one man. And then we see it in verse 21, kind of phrased a little differently, where it says sin reigned in death. So an idea that is stated or implied three times in just 10 verses must obviously be important for us to understand. Paul keeps repeating it. But as we've already mentioned, the fact that death reigns over all people proves that God judged everyone in Adam. That's what we labored to teach last week. In other words, the reign of death proves two things. The principles of representation and of imputation, <clears throat> both of which are indispensable to the gospel. So by representation, we know that we were represented by Adam. We talked about how we fuss about that last week, and that we think that's not fair, even though Adam was absolutely perfect in every way. No one that has ever lived could have been a better choice for you as your representative. And we tend to balk at that idea until we recognize that Christ also served as our representative. The gospel is not every man for himself. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died in your place. You've been represented by his death on the cross. So if you struggle with or reject this idea of representation in Adam then when it comes time for the gospel, you're really, if you're going to be consistent with your beliefs, you're really kind of up against it. What, what do I do now? So that's representation. Then we have imputation. And what that means is that something is counted to you or credited to you. And so in Adam, each of us has been credited with Adam's sin. His disobedience has been applied to us. So we're born with a sin nature. And before you claim that's not fair, you have to remember that in redemption, in salvation, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So again, in Adam, we have imputed to us sin and death. But in Christ, we have imputed to us righteousness and redemption and life. So those two principles are key to Paul's arguments. And so finally, another thing we say, this, this whole idea of death reigning through sin, that death reigned, has its counterpart down in verse 21. In verse 21, we see, so also grace must reign through righteousness. Again, that's the other side of the coin. That's the gospel. Yep, through Adam, through our union with Adam, we have all kinds of trouble. But if we choose Christ... then that's the only way salvation is possible. That's the only way that grace can reign through righteousness is when we put our trust in Christ. So let's talk a little bit about this reign of death. So you'll notice that it's linked to a very specific time period. It says in the verse that it was from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. It says death reigned. 
And it is a fact, we'll get to it later, that death also reigns now and will throughout all human history until the day of judgment. And that's when accounts will be made right. So why does Paul use this very specific time period? Again, the reason is he's emphasizing yet again that death came to us not through our own misadventures, not through our own mistakes, which is what we like to call sin, but through the sin of Adam. So, and we talked about this last week. We talked about the very unpleasant idea of when in a hospital a newborn baby might die. And you understand that it's not because of anything that baby did. It's not sitting there in the ICU for babies sinning. But it possesses that sin nature of Adam. It is one with Adam. In the garden when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so we are all subject to death even before we commit a single sin. So Paul doesn't talk about infants in his um, argument here, but they are certainly included. <clears throat> Rather, he's focusing on all people. And the reason is, the argument is, that in the time between Adam and Moses, even though there was no law for people to break, they still died. So if you believe <clears throat> that the reason people die, the reason the wages of sin is death, the reason that sin came through one man and death spread is because we all commit sin. How do you commit a sin where there is no law? Sin is the infraction of a law, correct? If I tell you, thou shalt not steal, and you do, you have broken that law and thereby sinned. If there are no laws, if it's like the Wild West, yeah, bad things still happen, and they still did, which we'll get to. But you can't hold people accountable for an infraction of a specific law, all right? And yet they all still died. So you have some little righteous lady out on the prairie, probably in Little House on the Prairie or something, and she's teaching school and raising underprivileged children and doing all the stuff and never sins. Polly Puritan, the purest form of woman you've ever seen she'll die because it's not the committing of the sins it is the fact that she has a sin nature that will cause her to be subject to death i mean just think about god's judgment against sin prior to moses you remember the flood things must have been pretty bad for god to destroy everybody on the planet except one family that is not a slap on the wrist. That is where God said that every man intends to do evil all the time, continually. And he's sorry that he made them. And so he wiped them out. All but one man and his family. We talked last week about Sodom and Gomorrah. You realize it just says they were evil and wicked. It doesn't say what laws they transgressed because the law had not been given yet. But they were certainly evil to the point where God destroyed the entire cities. Even after Abraham pled with him not to. The whole race 
is judged by universal death, not for the specific sins of individuals, but for Adam's transgression. And so here in this verse 13, we see that it says his sins were not counted against them. And what it's talking about there is, yes, they died, but it's not because of the actual things they did. Again, he's saying it's because of their union with Adam. It's their um, sin nature that is causing them to die. And that's why it says a little bit later in verse 14, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. You remember Adam's transgression. You remember we talked about how many laws were there in the Garden of Eden? Well, there was only one that we know of. There was only one recorded in Scripture, and it was do not eat of that tree. When I think of the ramifications of the disobedience of that one law, it really makes us focusing on the fruit seem rather ridiculous, doesn't it? This was about so much more than eating or a pleasant-looking fruit. This was about taking God at his word. This was about doing what God said instead of what the serpent said. It's about who are you going to serve forever. And that's why the consequences were so great. Adam and Eve said, I will serve myself. I'm going to be God. Because that was the promise that they were given. You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. Adam's choice was not, man, that fruit looks delicious. It was, I'm taking God's place. It was the first act of treason. And the penalty was death. And the penalty for all of his posterity is death. So the more I read these passages, the more I realize when we make light of the whole fruit thing, it might be funny. We argue about what kind of fruit it was. I'm more of a red meat and potatoes guy. I don't know that there's any kind of fruit that would entice me to do anything like that. But if it was a steak, that might, that might do it. Um, so he says, this is not like the transgression of Adam. Adam did violate God's law. There was only one, and Adam violated it. So the people that live between Adam and Moses, even though they sinned, they did terrible things. It was not like Adam's sin because they didn't have laws to break. So they didn't break specific commands. There was none for them to break. Okay, I think I've labored this point enough. So let me summarize it by quoting to you from William Barclay, who was a theologian. This is really the most succinct statement of this principle I found. So I'm going to put them up on the board. They're too long for you to write down, probably, but you can, if you like them, you can email me and I'll send them to you. The first point is Adam sinned because he broke a direct commandment of God, which we've already talked about. The commandment not to eat of the forbidden tree. And because Adam sinned, Adam, who was meant to be immortal, died. That's point number one. Adam sinned, Adam died. Number two, the law did not come until the time of Moses. Now, if there is no law, there can be no breach of the law. That is to say, if there is no law and no commandment, there can be no sin. Therefore, the men who lived between Adam and Moses did in fact sin, 
but it was not reckoned against them because they were as yet, there was as yet no law. And they could not be condemned for breaking a law that did not yet exist. Okay, this is a logical argument as much as it is a theological one. Are you following? Okay, three. In spite of the fact that sin could not be reckoned to them, they still died. Death reigned over them until they could not be accused, although they could not be accused of breaking a non-existent law. So they still died. Four. Why then did they die? They died because they had sinned in Adam. It was their involvement in the sin of Adam that caused their deaths, although there was no law for them to break. That, in fact, is Paul's proof that all men did sin in Adam. So again, this is that area where, man, it's hard to understand this, no matter how smart you are, until we decide, you know what? God wrote it in his word, and that's enough. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul was famous for criticizing a bumper sticker that was popular in his day. I, I remember hearing him many times in many different sermons just railing against this sticker because he would see it on the cars of devout Christians. They probably picked it up at their local Christian bookstore. And it would say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I mean, that sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds like the Christian life. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And Sproul would just, I mean, he was not a violent man. He would usually do it with humor. But he would say that is theologically wrong. The sticker should say, God said it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. You should. If God says something, you should. But if you don't, that doesn't make it any less settled. So these are difficult pas uh, passages for us to completely understand how that worked. And so I just ask that you put your faith in the author, not Paul, but God. God said it. That settles it. So what is one of the strongest passages for proving this? All men died in Adam. Well, I look to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is part of the genealogy of Adam. Now, chapter 4 covers some of the scoundrels and rascals that came from Adam's line. And chapter 5 deals with some of the devout God followers that came from Adam's line. But there's an interesting refrain, and it becomes powerful as you read it, especially as you read it out loud. It says, and then he died. These are the devout people. People like Enoch and Methuselah and Noah. Let me read a few of these verses. I don't know if, if these are going to be on the screen or not. Nope, okay. You don't need to look these up. And I think I didn't put them on there just because there's a bunch of them. So Genesis chapter 5 is where we are. We'll start with verse 4. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 7. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 11. 
Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Finally, verse 31, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. I mean, these were long lifespans, all the way up to 969 years. But each was cut off by death. Death reigned during this period, just as as it has reigned over every other period of human history. So how can we apply this to benefit from it? What do we do with this truth? Because, yeah, I think Paul is arguing for the concept of imputation of both sin and righteousness. That's very uh, scholarly or theoretical if you want to get to it. But I think there's another problem. He's concerned with our current great dilemma. All have sinned and all must die. But Paul has the solution for it. Do you know that, that you must die? Do you realize that now? Years and years ago, when girls, young girls used to learn to read and write, they, they did so by making samplers, these little embroidered samples. And they would take truths and, and do it, they would do it in needlepoint from the New England primer. It usually taught Bible truths, taught as couplets. They sometimes rhymed. For example, under the letter A, they would work in with their needlepoint. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. I mean, that's what we've been teaching. It's just not that simply. I should have looked at this a long time ago. Pretty simple, right? But then you get to X. What are we going to do with X? X says, Xerxes the Great did die. And so must you and I. This is what little girls are learning as they needlepoint these samplers by reading from their school books. And that's exactly what Romans 5 is talking about. One, A, Adam sinned. And sin entered the world through that man. And go all the way to X, everyone. Death came to all men, even Xerxes. I mean, we joke about death and taxes, referring to their certainty. Yet we go to great lengths to avoid these certainties. So I'm going to end with some information from a historian. And I mentioned that we sometimes do this. Most of it's not noteworthy except for us to understand where we are right now. Especially when it comes to a topic like death. A man named Franz Borkenauer believes, he's a historian, not really a theologian, he believes that cultures can be analyzed by the ways that they handle death. And he breaks them into three. There are death-accepting cultures, death-denying cultures, and death-defying cultures. So I just want to go over these real quickly. Again, just so you know how we got where we are as people. I mean, which one are you? 
First, we have death accepting culture, and he uses the example of Socrates. Socrates is one of the greatest uh, or most often cited examples of death ever, other than probably Christ. He was found guilty by the rulers of Athens of corrupting the city's youth with his atheism. And by atheism, it meant he did not believe in the literal existence of all the Greek gods. So he was corrupting the youth. He was sentenced to death. He would die by drinking hemlock. So the moment came. His students were gathered around him. Many were weeping. But Socrates did not weep. Instead, he used the occasion to reason with his students to try to teach them about immortality. And this is in a discourse that Plato, one of his students, would later record in the Phaedo, which you can read if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But Socrates argued that the soul is immortal and that death is the only way the individual can escape the curses of bodily existence. The problem is it's difficult to die serenely when all you have is philosophical hope which is all he had. And he may have done it. He may have died peacefully. We don't know. We don't know what he was actually experiencing. He may have been jumping up and down on the inside, you know, the, the kind of people that very calm on the outside. Even Plato confessed that when his mentor drank the poison, he, along with the others, burst into tears at losing such a just and wise companion. But that's a death-accepting culture modeled by Socrates. Then we have the death-denying culture. This includes our own, and Borkenau finds that this is the most inadequate of all. So why does our culture today try to deny death's inescapable reality? It's confronting us constantly. Back in the days of paper newspapers, Just inside the first couple of pages was the listing with pictures of all the people that died that day or the days before. It's right there in front of you. I don't know where you go to find that stuff now. It's still there digitally? Okay. I didn't know we still had paper newspapers. We do. Good. Okay. So I learned something today. Thank you, dear. So why do we go to such lengths even to avoid speaking about death? How many of you cringed when I talked about dying infants? We just do. It's unpleasant. We don't even like to talk about it. Well, a long time ago, some years ago, the Forest Lawn Foundation, this was a huge West Coast funeral institution. They hired a guy. He was an American Baptist seminary professor. His name was Doss, Richard Doss. They hired him to investigate this question. And they said, write a book on it. We want to know why this culture has such a hard time understanding death. And so he suggested several reasons. We're going to look at a few of them. And again, this is just so you can see maybe how we've gotten to this point. The first one is psychological reason. He said people... um, See, death, it's just an unconscious fear. Mankind holds it. Freud wrote about it. And the more we hear about death and the more we see it, the more we tend to compartmentalize it and deny it. We, we, we see reminders of it every day, and so we deny it vigorously. Again, like most things that are psychological, you can agree or disagree. I don't know if I believe that or not. I don't know this guy, Doss. 
The second reason for our denial of death is cultural. I do see this. Our society emphasizes youthfulness, vitality, productivity. The worth of individuals is often measured by what they can contribute. Wholeness is measured by someone's ability to act and to think young. So in America, death is not the last enemy to be defeated at the last trump of God, the way the Bible describes it. But it is an enemy to be defeated now through things like gyms and health spas and facelifts and diets and health foods and a variety of other body-enhancing pastimes and procedures. I think one of the best slogans that really capture this idea was from back in 1987. Isn't that when we got married? 1987. I knew that sounded familiar. So 1987, the company called Oil of Olay, which is still around. They sell cosmetics and stuff. But they came out with an ad campaign that said, I don't intend to grow old gracefully. I intend to fight it every step of the way. And of course, they would have some woman, either already beautiful or putting on their product to become more beautiful. I don't know. I don't remember seeing the ad. But I don't intend to grow old gracefully. I want to fight it every step of the way. That's kind of our culture. And there's nothing wrong with being healthy, I think. It's not been great for me. I've tried two days in my life to do that. Uh, But Doss, of course, he's a seminary professor. You can imagine he considers the main reason to be religious. Our insistence upon denying death is a religious problem. And why would he say that? Let me just quote some of this. See if you agree with where our country is right now. And this was written a long time ago. Religion has been a major force in shaping the ideas and lifestyle of the American people. Our forefathers came to this country with a clearly defined view of man and the world from the Puritan settlement of New England to 19th century life on the western frontier. A theological framework supported and interpreted man's place in society and his relationship with nature and God. Man believed and felt that God had a purpose for life, and more than that, every man could know and understand God's plan. Death was one element within this religious framework and thus could be dealt with openly and treated as a natural part of life. Burial of the dead was carried out with religious rites, which gave expression to this view of God's purposes for man. That was then. Then he says, but the 20th century has seen a virtual abolition of the traditional Christian framework with no proposal to take its place. Now we don't almost argue that we propose for the state to take its place. But that's more political than theological, so I won't argue that if you disagree. Secularization has separated modern man from older understandings of man and society, and in doing so, has separated death from the means by which it, which it has been isolated and denuded. With no meaningful framework for understanding death, our culture has adopted a style of denial and avoidance. I think that kind of sounds right. I tend to agree with him. But death cannot be avoided. 
That is the reality. Death reigns. That's what Paul is saying here. You can treat it as a fiction if you want to, but suddenly death turns the corner and walks down your street and forces its form across the threshold of either your home or the home of a neighbor. And we tremble before it. But there's a final type of culture, and that is a death-defying culture. Borkenau lists this as he discovers that it exists in Judaism and Christianity. The Old Testament Jew looked forward to an afterlife. Look at what Job wrote, Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer, capital R, lives. This is Old Testament. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. That's pretty strong for an Old Testament character, is it not? Paul also looked forward to it. 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So how did Paul come to an answer like this? How did Job sustain his defiance of death? Well, the answer is through Jesus Christ. It's the solution Job anticipated. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And Paul, with his later and greater understanding, proclaimed it boldly. All of that to summarize, to be summarized right here. Two points. Christianity has the only explanation for the universal reign of death. And Christianity has the only solution for it. Period. Let me give you some comparisons between Christ and Adam, and then we'll close. There's a Scottish minister and a hymn writer named Horatius Bonar, and he wrote this, The first Adam dies, and we die in him. The second Adam dies, and we live in him. Now, just to remind you, the second Adam we're talking about here is Jesus Christ. The first Adam's grave proclaims only death. The second Adam's grave announces life. I am the resurrection and the life. We look into the grave of the one and we see only darkness, corruption, and death. We look into the grave of the other and we find there only light, incorruption, and life. We look into the grave of the one and we find that he is still there, his dust still mingling with its fellow dust about it. We look into the grave of the other and find that he is not there. He is risen. Risen as our forerunner into the heavenly paradise, the home of the risen and redeemed. We look into the grave of the first Adam and see in him the first fruits of them that have died. The millions that have gone down to that prison house whose gates he opened. We look into the tomb of the second Adam 
And we see in him the first fruits of that bright multitude, that glorified band who are to come forth from that cell, triumphing over death and rising to the immortal life, not through the tree which grew in the earthly paradise, but through him whom that tree prefigured, through him who was dead and is alive and who liveth forevermore and who has the keys of hell and death. How did Jesus accomplish this transformation? He did it by dying in our place, by taking the punishment for our sins upon himself. He became our representative, just as Adam had been our representative before. He endured the punishment of our death, and then he rose again so that we might enjoy the reality of eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. I mean, when I read, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, that's not a very uplifting theme. But that's not the last chapter. Through Christ, death was defeated. I'm going to ask our musicians to come to the stage. I want to close by referring to some of the songs we sing, or that we know. We opened the service this morning with a song by Matt Maher called, Christ is risen. You remember it? It's had a line in it that says, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. He defeated death by his own death. And we sing it victoriously. It represents the victory won by Christ. I mean, I jotted down, I didn't know this was in this song. We sang another song called Jesus, You Alone. You got to start listening for this stuff in there. And it said, you broke the curse for our freedom. What do you think the curse is in that phrase? It's the curse of universal sin and universal death. And Jesus alone broke that curse for our freedom. That's just one little line tucked into that song. But this isn't just an Easter topic where you could bring out almost every Easter hymn and say, oh, it talks about defeating death. We sing about it at Christmas. You sing the hymn, Joy to the World. We sing of the blessings of the coming Christ. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The Savior reigns. Repeat the sounding joy. But then there's a reference that many of us miss. And we've studied this morning again about the curse, the curse of sin and death. We've learned that this curse extends to us all. There is no escape. There is no avoidance. But in verse 3 of the hymn, Joy to the World, the hymn writer deals with the scope of the Savior's work. Verse 3 says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. No one is excluded. The cross is open to all who will come. So this Christmas, as we sing the wonders of his love, we can reflect on the truth that our union with Christ ensures that the reign of death has been defeated and we have been brought from death to life. And I'll close with this. In 2015, four young songwriters wrote a song, they collaborated, and I don't even know who sings it, Seth something, Seth, 
I don't know, it's a group of those young worship guys who all sing like they're singing into a really strong wind. You know the guys, they sing like this. I don't understand that at all. I don't think it's windy in those arenas. But they really struggle with singing something emphatically. They don't know what to do with their bodies when their voices are singing something strongly and emphatically. And that's kind of what this song is about. It says, alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. That kind of sounds like us as this morning, right? Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Now, of course, by arrested, we think of like taking into custody. This clearly doesn't mean that. It means to check the course of something or to stop it. It's arrested. There's a bridge in there in the song, which is a fancy name for just another little chorus. And it says, oh, we're free, free forever. We're, this is where they don't know what to do with their bodies. We're free, we're free forever, we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Yes, we're free, free forever, amen, when death was arrested and my life began. That's what we're talking about this morning when we talk about the gospel, the curse of death, the curse of sin and death is arrested, it is stopped, and your life in Christ can begin. All we have to do is trust in him. Let's pray this morning.